Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. On today's episode, we hear from Anthony Lacavera, founder and chairman of Global Live. Without exaggeration, Anthony is an extremely accomplished Canadian entrepreneur. He's built and sold a number of companies, including Win Mobile, for a reported $1.3 billion. That's billion with a B. He now focuses his time on venture capital financing and high potential opportunities, as well as hosting a new television series, Beyond Innovation, on BNN Bloomberg. Now, there's no doubt that his accomplishments speak for themselves. But it's how he got there and how he was able to finance his way through these ventures that interested me. So we get into the details of how he did some of this, how he's financed his companies, the mistakes he's made, and what he looks for in his current venture investments. His insights on the mistakes he's made are, well, they're actually invaluable, but perhaps even common among all entrepreneurs. So it goes to show that even the most successful entrepreneurs have their own faults and blind spots. We also talk about Globalive as a venture investor. I wanted to know more and Anthony takes us behind the scenes of how they approach their due diligence process. A part of this is the multiple conversations that take place while going through this. I think a big takeaway from this is that you shouldn't be afraid of these conversations, especially the ones that probe into difficult topics. Instead, it's an opportunity for you to ensure that you have the right potential investors and for them to surface potential issues that you may be too deep in to see. So let's get into it. I'm certainly happy to share this interview with you. Enjoy the show. On the line, I have Anthony Lacavera, who's the founder and chairman of Global Live. Anthony, you're a serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, philanthropist, author, and generally a very busy man. So I want to say thank you very much for making the time. Rory, it's a pleasure to be with you, man. Absolutely. Nice to reconnect. And I'm very much looking forward to our conversation because I know that you certainly have a huge amount of experience when it comes to financing companies, both through your venture capital work and then through your entrepreneurial endeavors. So um, perhaps what we can do is uh, I'll hand it over to you for an introduction so the audience can learn more about who you are. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm a career founder, CEO. I started in the late 90s. My career has been predominantly in the telecom industry, both in the traditional landline world for business and consumers, as well as in the wireless industry for business and consumers. And I had close to a 20-year career in that. And uh, circa 2016, I sort of exited the operating businesses and spent the last five years or so now coming up on really six or seven years, kind of a bit of an overlap there. I've been focusing more on investing in early stage technology companies. And, you know, certainly along the way, lots of roller coasters, lots of good news and bad news, lots of successes, lots of failures, and happy to share my experiences. You're understated there because some of the businesses you've built have been 
monumental successes. So I'm looking forward to diving into that. Your main focus now, correct me if I'm wrong, is Globalive, which is your parent company. And you've got a venture investment firm there. But then also something interesting that you're working on and you're going into season two is Beyond Innovation. Do you want to give us a bit of color on that or both of those and then we can build from there? Globalize really started out as an operating company in the telecom industry, and I started up businesses sort of underneath that umbrella. Globalize Wireless operated in Canada as Wind Mobile brand name, and Globalize Communications operated as uh, Yak uh, was the brand name, as well as One Connect was a service for business. So, operated a number of different telecom brands that I had started and built up, both on the traditional fixed line or landline side of things, uh, internet and phone service. And also in the wireless industry, where I built uh, a lot of wireless infrastructure across Canada and operated a uh, business there. So uh, Global Life's kind of been around since 1998 kind of time frame when I first started up my career. And in the last five years, we've been focused on Global Life Ventures or Global Life Capital, where we've been just really investing in the context of Global Life Capital, some later stage businesses and in the context of Global Life Ventures, we're really active in the seed, pre-seed, seed, late seed kind of innovation ecosystem, predominantly in North America, but we're looking further afield now as well. And so one of the things that got interesting for me actually along the way was initially contributing on Bloomberg television as really just a, a technology contributor. I really started to enjoy having the opportunity to talk about the, call it world leaders in innovation. And one of the things I recognized as I was doing that work for Bloomberg TV, just because as a contributor, is that I realized that we're always talking about the Fortune 500 tech. We're always talking about the big names. We're always talking about Bill Gates and, you know, through Elon Musk, through Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, the same Jeff, Jeff Bezos, the same names kind of circle around. And then you have a whole myriad of, of tier, the next set of names down, but still the big kind of Fortune 500 tech. And so I felt like there was a real gap in the media coverage of, let's call it, uh, earlier stage technology innovation, stuff that you haven't heard of yet before it becomes a big name, before there's a big IPO or before there's a big merger or something. The news media just doesn't cover the earlier stage stuff. So we created a, a global life concept called Beyond Innovation, which is a TV show that really focuses on showcasing that earlier stage innovation. And we're trying to find the great emerging founders that are going to be the next decade of big stories. So the way I describe the show to people in a sentence is if we can find, you know, our, the goal of the show is to find Bill Gates in the late seventies. It's the goal, you know, hmm. find Jeff Bezos in the late nineties to, to find Mark Zuckerberg in you know, 2003, to find Larry Page in 1998. That's really kind of what the show is all about. And so if you look at cross season one, you know, we profiled over a hundred early stage emerging founders, some of the stuff, just rocket ship growth, very exciting. And the show's global. So we shot season one in Hong Kong, in London, in San Francisco, in New York. We're in season two. We, we started season two in Austin in the fall. And then we've had, a, obviously, a disruption because of the travel restrictions mm -hmm. with uh, the current pandemic. But look, we're going to get back at it, hopefully, and continue season two starting kind of in the fall. It's pretty interesting and perhaps even a feeder into globalize ventures into the, your investment firm there definitely that's a reaction i get a lot but honestly that's definitely you know potentially an opportunity and there are obviously we see a lot of we're seeing hundreds of companies anyway and definitely that this adds flow but you know Corey, honestly i'm not 
they're really not linked in my mind that like that way. It's okay. Like, yeah. But I'm not trying to make it a feeder for Global Eye because Global Eye Ventures kind of invests in types of you know, software that we're familiar with, a lot of telecom stuff that we're familiar with. Where a lot of the stuff we cover on the show is in healthcare, biotech, robotics, gene therapies. You know, a lot of stuff that is super cool, innovative technology that's coming you know, into the marketplace, but it's not stuff that we would invest in. So beyond your wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of this classic thing, you know, stick to our knitting. So we try to invest in stuff that we have some expertise in. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, for the listeners, and, and I am curious, can you give us some of the parameters of the deals that you look at? What kind of businesses are you interested in with Global Live? And what's the bite size and the parameters of investing that you like to stick to? We're early stage investors, Global Live Ventures. So it's a pre seed seed stage stuff. So it can be as little as a fifty or hundred thousand dollar, you know, pre-seed investment. You know, obviously in late seed and series A rounds, the checks get larger into the millions of dollars. But we're not really a let's call it series B or beyond or pre-IPO 10, 20, 30 million dollar investor. We're really at the early stage. We love getting in early on on things and really partnering with founders in a true partnership sense. We're very founder friendly. We're very founder centric. Obviously being a founder CEO, most of my career, I certainly understand, you know, a lot of the things that go right and go wrong. And mm-hmm. I try to just candidly just be there to, as an ear for a sounding board, if something comes up and I really enjoy those conversations, you know, and, and sort of building that relationship with the founder. And obviously, as you know, really well from your career, it's not a straight line ever to mm-hmm. success in these things. So. It's in the difficult times when you really want to you know, see where you can help people. There's two things I really wanted to touch on in this interview to get from the interview. And one was, what are those tough times? I'd love to dig into the harder times of your career because from that has come great success. And then something else I'm really curious about, and perhaps it's been over-discussed, I'm not sure, but is how you built wind. Because I think that was such a... David versus Goliath story. So I'd love to hear about that. But can we start about advice for founders when it comes to the tough conversations, the tough decisions, and some of the things in and around financing where you continue to see errors happen that are detrimental to a startup's health and success? So look, a lot of my mistakes have been self-inflicted, frankly, and some of them were avoidable. If I start with the stuff that was self-inflicted, you know, there's a popular cliche in startups that's you know perseverance is just a key you know element when things are never going to go well you've got to keep pivoting pivoting you've got to keep iterating on the business model and keep at it and i found that earlier in my career i would really stick with something way too long because i just thought that if i just keep pivoting you know it's eventually going to work and i've gotten a lot better now at saying you know what at some point this is just not a model that makes sense. We got to stop this and do something else. And so, earlier in my career, I spent years, you know, in, some, in, in a couple of cases, just trying to make something work that never, didn't really make sense. And I'll give you a specific example. I was in the, the telecom business in the landline side of things, the legacy side of things. And part of the business I was in was payphones, the traditional kind of payphone business, like literally put a quarter in a phone back. You remember those days? And I was trying to evolve that business model into being a free wireless free Wi-Fi hotspot that would be everywhere there was physically a connection that the phone was using previously, uh, the payphone was using. And I tried to do that driven on an advertising model. I was calling it free phone. 
it would be advertising based. And I couldn't sell to Corey a dollar of bloody advertising, man. Like it was mm. just not, just not something that worked. But I kept trying to pivot it and pivot it and pivot it. The current version of me would have not pivoted so much in three months, six months, I would have just shot it dead and moved on to something else. I think that's one of my messages to founders is like, you definitely want to balance perseverance and discipline and focus and consistency and sticking with something. Balance it with what you're seeing in the marketplace. Balance it with the input you're getting. And if people are really shaking their heads at you, there's there's a whole set of people that are going to shake their heads just because they're haters and they're just not going to believe you're going to be successful. And then there's the whole set of people that are shaking their heads who are thinking about it. You really got to listen to those people. And they're not hard to identify. You can see the people that are just haters and they just don't want to believe something is possible. And then the people that want to try to believe but are really thinking about it and saying, hey, man, I don't know if this really makes any sense. So that's kind of a big lesson learned for me. Don't drink too much of your own Kool-Aid and really listen to what people are saying to you and filter through the naysayers from the people that are really giving you real input and, and work with it and digest it and process it. In terms of like the other side of things or stuff I didn't anticipate, and it ties into wind, I didn't really anticipate at all coming into wind how strong the oligopoly, the incumbent telecom operators are. So when I started wind up in the wireless industry, Canadian market was dominated by three players, still is dominated by three players, although the fourth carrier that I built is, is a sizable competitor. Uh, now owned by Shaw Communications. Uh, I thought that the Canadians would really have a real desire for competition in wireless, given how high the prices were. The prices were the highest in mm-hmm. the CD, and roaming charges were ridiculous. You know from your travels to Mexico how expensive roaming can be. We're all beholden to our captors. Yeah, very much so. Very <laughs> much so. So it was something where I thought that there would be an ability to break into the market much more easily. And I underestimated how strong the incumbents are. So I say that to founders a lot. That, you know what I mean? You're entering a new marketplace. You might, you know, if you're, and I always use the IBM example, let's say you're creating some software that's going to challenge IBM. Sure, you can say all the things about IBM being big, a bureaucracy, an old company, slow moving, all those things. But on the other side of that, don't underestimate how powerful they are when they get moving. And you can use whatever analogy you want. It's uh, you know, a tanker ship, and really you're in a little rowboat beside that tanker ship. Yeah, it'll take it a long time to turn towards you, but it's going to turn if you start moving faster and faster and get bigger and bigger. And you want to be managing that risk and seeing that coming and getting in front of that. And so I think that's an important lesson in entering any market where there's big dominant incumbents, whether it be software, whether it be banking, you know, you see a lot of the fintechs and we invest in a number of fintechs and they come up with this like amazing revolutionary software and say, oh, we're going to transform the banking industry, transform financial services. And I'm like, yeah, well, whether it's Citi or Wells Fargo or Bank of America, those are brands that have been around a long time. And yeah, they don't move as quickly as, as you can in the early going, but when they do get their oar in the water rowing in their direction, they're going to create real waves. So think about that. That's kind of the biggest lesson coming into wind and the government and the incumbents were able to really play a lot of dirty games and try to slow me down. In the end, we built a great business and Canadians were very adopting the brand very, very successfully. And ultimately we had a good exit to Shaw Communications and it continues now into the freedom brand to be a really a good competitor. I appreciate your humble approach there as a good exit to as it reported, 1.3 billion US is what I saw there, which <laughs> yeah. is, is, is outstanding. 
Can you take us to the early days there, even before the incorporation of wind? And yeah. I would imagine you identified, I mean, it, you've got three major players in the market, rates are outrageous, and service is poor, and so on. There's a problem there, but more importantly, you had to go raise a tremendous amount of money with a business plan that you needed to convince those people to put into. Can you take us there and walk through how you were able to raise that capital? There's an expression that I really like when people say that, what is really entrepreneurship? And entrepreneurship to me is a pursuit of an objective without regard to resources currently controlled. My friend Reza Sachu, who's a, a lecturer at, at uh, Rotman uh, School, University of Toronto, uh, uses that expression a lot. Entrepreneurship is the pursuit of an objective without regard to resources currently controlled. And so when I looked at wins, you know, obviously I had a good business going. I was about 10 years into my telecom business. This is circa 2008. Wireless prices, as I mentioned, were you know, among the highest in the entire OECD. Service levels, to your point, were among the lowest. The customer satisfaction scores were among the lowest in the OECD. Look, generally Canadians were unhappy with their telecom carriers. And so the way I approached it was to start off initially with a conversation with Canadians. And it was early social media days as well, circa 2008. So I created really more of a site for people to come to me and I called it the wireless soapbox. And the site was very successful and I had people writing on there, the good, bad and the ugly on their experience with Canadian wireless carriers. Over 100,000 people posted on that site. And I garnered a tremendous amount of data about what people would like to see in their next wireless carrier. And so we tailored the plans and the brand and the positioning of the business all around the input we received from people. And I think that really resonated. So we were able to get off the ground very quickly, have a real rapid adoption curve of wind uh, mobile. And you know we had some really good marketing around it as well. Again, listening to what people were saying to us about what they wanted to see in a wireless carrier. And it came down to, I'm so tired of not being able to budget for my mobile bill. You know, I sign up for something that's $45 a month and I get the bill and it's $65. Like, how can that be? And so simplifying the pricing, simplifying roaming, we were the first to introduce unlimited roaming in the United States, which was a real pain point for Canadians who obviously a lot of us travel to the U.S. for holiday or, or family, whatever. And so there was a few things like that. We really listened to Canadians and we built the business around that. In terms of the capital raise, you're quite right. It's a very significant capital raise for a startup. It was like $700 million. Just in case anybody didn't catch that because it seemed to cut out, you said $700 million. I mean, that's tremendous. That's a huge amount of money. Not all of that kind of went into the startup. $400 million or so of that was to acquire the Spectrum license. And in the wireless industry, that's equivalent to buying land. So, you know, the way I draw it, explain it to people is you have to buy the land and then you got to build the hotel on the land. And the hotel is all your cell towers like, across the country. And then you're renting out as much space as you can in the hotel as quickly as you can. I'm not trying to understate how difficult it was to raise the capital for because it was very difficult. But it was something where my proposition was to investors was you're buying an asset with this piece of the money. And then with this other piece of the money, we're going to build a new wireless network. And there's a real opportunity in Canada because look at how high the pricing is and look at how low the customer satisfaction scores are and look at all this market data that I've collected about what Canadians really want to see in a wireless carrier. So that's how that all came together. It definitely helped, Corey, when I really look at like how did that capital raise go. I had 10 years of successful operating history in the telecommunications industry. 
and I rolled my business. So in the end, you know, the investors are looking across the table with me and I've got everything on the line. And yes, that's a huge amount of money, but you know, they were really big companies, big strategics that mm. obviously nobody would want to lose money like that, but they also didn't have everything on the line. So I think that gives investors a lot of comfort. And when I meet with founders, I always stress that when founders talk to me about they're going to go out and do a pre-seed or seed capital raise. If I get into it and I find out that they're really only partially committed or they're working on a couple things or they have a full-time job and they're out trying to raise startup capital. Now, not everybody has the flexibility to just quit their job at the outset, but it certainly makes it a lot less appealing if somebody's you know, trying to do a pre-seed raise while they have a job and they're not talking about quitting their job to do this, at least until they see if it's working or not. That's really discouraging for investors. So I always try to stress to entrepreneurs that you want the optic out there that you're all in. And if you're, especially if you're a first time founder, you're all in. And especially younger first time founders obviously have not a lot of obligations financially, so they can afford to take a lot of risk and they really should. It's not about whether you can invest or not. It's about the investors really believing that you're deeply committed. It really goes a long way. Yeah. I think that point of commitment and almost, you know, cutting all bridges is not only the optic, but demonstrating I'm all in is, is almost worth more than well, I think it's probably one of the most important things from the perception of investors, which way they want to see. When it comes to deal structures, and especially at that pre-seed and seed stage and those early stages of financing, I think that way too often the entrepreneurs can unwillingly or unwittingly ruin their companies by not paying enough attention to their capital structures. Yes. What advice do you have for ensuring they're playing chess as opposed to playing checkers? Because there's a long game that has to be prepared for there. Look, that's an excellent thought and question and observation all, all in one. I mean, the first thing I think people need to do is when they, they have a, a business idea and they're trying to get something out of the gate is, is it something that should be financed by venture capital? Because venture capital, to your point exactly, has a certain profile of capital structure, a certain time horizon a certain set of outcomes, whether it be M&A or IPO, there's just a certain path that you're committing yourself to. And look, that could be absolutely the right path. I mean, obviously the biggest names in tech today, you know, were venture financed, whether you talk about Facebook or Google or, or whatever. There's no question that when you think about a tech business and you think about venture capital, you just have to understand what you're committing yourself to in terms of the path that you're on. Because not every founder and not every business should be venture financed. And so a lot of it starts with, as a founder, thinking about what are really you trying to get out of this business? Is this supposed to be something that's a business that you're building over the course of your career and you're going to hand to your siblings or your children and to next generations? Is this a family business really you're trying to build? Because if you bring in a certain set of investors for that, they're going to have expectations. Venture investors are going to have certain expectations of how things are going to and so it's important to get all that out on the table at the outset, in my opinion. And well, what I'm hearing there to, to expand on that is actually for that entrepreneur to really be honest with themselves and recognizing and really checking their thought processes uh, and not getting wrapped up in perhaps delusions of grandeur that I think VC money can bring quite easily. Look, I think that that's a really good point and it's just not for everyone. And so... I think you're right. It's about being honest with yourself and really digging into that. It's a lot of soul searching because there's certainly a lot of 
both constraints and opportunities that come with venture capital. There's obviously lots of business loan programs out there that the banks operate, that the business development banks in, in every major state, province, federally operate. I think that those are a lot better fit for a lot of people where you have an ability to get something rolling and return capital to investors that are expecting just to be paid back with an interest or whatever, and that's it, versus or partners. And then that leads me to the co-founder discussion. Nothing can cause a business to fail, like having the dynamics of co-founders not be just not perfect, but awesome. And having everybody aligned and thinking the same way, people of like mind is so critical. And of all the early stage businesses that I've invested in that have not worked, which, which have been many, <laughs> certainly <laughs> taken my first year of zeros. I could point to core, I'm not, you know, not joking, three quarters of them. And we do kind of a look back on this on our portfolio, like what failed and why did it fail? Three quarters of those failures are, you know, founder dynamics, co-founder mm. founder dynamics, and just one person leaves or one person's got a different idea of doing things or roles and responsibilities aren't clearly defined. And obviously roles and responsibilities evolve as, as businesses evolve and there's various ways people grow with businesses or, or not. And, and can, things can I drill in on that quick? Um, yeah, sure. With three quarters of the unsuccessful companies that you've participated with being founder issues, that's clearly part of the risk that you're looking to address when writing a check. How sure. could an entrepreneur or a co-founding team speak to you in a way to address those issues so that you could look and, and I mean, hopefully they can stick to what they're going to say to you, but how could they demonstrate to you that they've been able to mitigate that risk for you as an investor? It's all about just talking openly of that they've thought it through. So I'm just looking for a conversation and I'm looking to glean from that conversation the lay of the land, you know, uh, how relationships formed and how long they've been formed for and what the, the visions of the business is that, you know, there's some bright line tests where if the vision, if you, if you ask two different founders separately, like what's your vision for this business and they don't answer the question the same way. I mean, that's a big red flag. So is that part I of think, your due diligence process? I mean, I've got a team that it's into obviously doing what you would call traditional financial, legal, so on, diligence. My role and my venture group's role, Bryce Seschuk is, is, is my, my business partner and runs our, our venture portfolio. The two of us are really meeting people and just really we're talking to founders and we're trying to discern objectives, commitment levels, discipline. Obviously, everybody that's coming has got real capabilities and education and confidence behind them in, in a lot of ways like that. But it's, where are you trying to get to? What is your vision for this thing? How do you want to see it unfold? And then how do you see your relationship with your co-founder today and in the future? And what really is from our, it's, it's not us trying to have like a gotcha kind of conversation. It's honestly, it's really us trying to help the founders really from our experience, like, hey, that's a pitfall you guys should think about. I'll take one simple example from a recent business we looked at where we were two great co-founders, both this is tech, because obviously we, we focus uh, on tech. It's just two AI computer science grads, and they had created some software in the financial to, to work with fintechs and improve outcomes and loans and so on. And one of them had this idea that they were going to start selling to major banks right away. And the other one had this idea that software, the product market fit was much better selling to other small fintechs. 
And I mean, that's a big, big gap mm-hmm. in the go-to-market strategy. And so we just like say, hey guys, like you can't do both of those things at once in our view. It's just our opinion. And you, not to say you guys might not, not you guys can obviously disagree. It's your business, not ours. So we don't think, given the resources you have today, the team you have today, and the amount you're trying to raise, which in that case was a few million dollars, we just don't think you're going to be able to go to market in multiple channels like that. You got to pick one, make that work there, and, and really drive hard at it. Look, in the end, Corey, they just did not agree with us, and they thought that they would go a different route. And it was a very good, friendly conversation. We ended up not being the right investor for them. And then, you know, that's the kind of conversations we really like to have with founders. And you know, in some respects, you want to have people that are have convictions with their own business plan because if you provide feedback as an investor and then they just come back to you the next meeting with a presentation that just just plays back at you everything just rolls you over it yeah yeah i'm sort of like listen i don't know anything about what you guys are talking about i've got one percent of the information you have i'm just asking questions to see how you're thinking about things not because i think i'm right anyway that's kind of for us how we approach it Interesting. You know, lots of points that I'm taking from there that I think will be valuable to the audience. So I appreciate that. What I do want to do is be respectful of your time here is I know we're nearing when you have a hard stop, but I have a couple more questions and perhaps they'll touch on an earlier conversation we have and and even on a, a bit of a personal level. One of them is what mistakes have you made that have been the most meaningful in your career? Something that you look back on and go, that was painful, but has actually given you some form of return on that, if you will. So there are a few big mistakes that I've made along the way. One would be starting a business, and, and I, I started to talk about it earlier, free phone, where I committed several years, three, almost four years, and millions of dollars uh, of my own money, which obviously I had made. I didn't inherit any money. I, I started with zero when I started my first business in the late 90s. It was money that I had made, and I, I bet a lot of it, and I kept trying to pivot it, pivot it, pivot it. And it really should have just been a shot at building. It was because I had had some success at that point. It was circa 2003 that I'd started. And I started my business in 98. And so it was five years in, and I was feeling pretty good about myself at that time because we were profitable and business growing really, really well. In fact, in 2004, we were ranked uh, by Profit Magazine, Canada's fastest growing company on their you know, annual listing. So we had a really good run going. And I think I started to really get overconfident. And in the end, that was a bad business. It was just a bad idea. It was just one of my dumbest ideas ever. (laughs) I just (laughs) wouldn't let that be the case. I just kept trying to make it work. And so that was a big mistake. In the wind era, in addition to underestimating the strength of the incumbents and thinking that I was going to be able to break into the market easily, I learned a lot there about scaling up a business. So the businesses that I had started prior to that one weren't small, but they got to 200 people. And it's an order, not only an order of magnitude more difficult, but it's an order of magnitude more different when you go from 200 to 2,000 or more. I always say to people, I should have listened a lot more to everybody around me that had, call it more corporate experience, that had come into the team from big companies. A lot of them came from Bell, Telus, and Rogers. You know, I just kept thinking to myself, when I would hear them talk about it and they present their ideas and and I'm thinking to myself, wow, that it's because you're coming from an institution the size of Rogers. You're not thinking innovatively. But the truth is they were thinking really innovatively. They were recognizing the size we were at. And I was thinking we're still a really small, nimble company, but we'd already become a much bigger company. And so 
I learned a lot in those years about the ultimate lesson and mistake was really just not listening to everybody around me. So I became a much better listener if I didn't fully understand something instead of glossing over it at the risk of just looking like I don't know what I'm talking about, I would literally just get into some basic questions with people. And I was much more effective when I finally did that. I just say, look, I didn't understand what you just said. You can explain it differently. And so, uh, you know, just some simple things like that enabled me to be a better leader. And at the outset, I was not as effective uh, in that regard. And then lastly, I would say in the early going of my career, when things weren't going, I had venture investors in my first business. And I was obviously quite inexperienced at dealing with investors. They were my first set of investors. And this was circa 1999 or so. In 2001, 2002, things really started working well. But there was things also that were not working well. And you might remember the dot-com bust at that time really made things rough for not just internet 1.0 businesses, but telecom businesses. There was really a tech and telecom bust in 2001. So a lot of my early customers in 2000, 2001 actually went bankrupt. And I thought, okay, I got to just figure out how to make this work and not really show the investors that I'm vulnerable, show the investors that I've made some mistakes. I wasn't trying to mislead anybody, but I was trying to, let's call it package things in a way that I thought would be more palatable to the investors. And in hindsight, Corey, what I'm now as an investor really know, I'd much rather hear exactly what's going right and exactly what's going wrong so that I could be helpful. So I think I wasn't, just it came from inexperience. It wasn't deliberately being not transparent in any way, not deliberately doing anything. I was, I was doing what I thought was what I needed mm-hmm. to do. But I say to founders now, I say, look, like this is going to be just really, you're going to get beat up along the way here pretty badly in all likelihood. And when you're getting beat up, it's okay to have a black eye when you come and meet with me. You know, that's okay. Let's talk about how it happened and, and see if I could help you win the next battle. So there's that's a kinda, power in that vulnerability. Yeah, a huge one. Hmm. Uh, so I would say those are three, in summary, those are three kind of <laughs> big lessons learned in my career. Appreciate that. Yeah. How about one more question? Are you good for that? Yeah, sure, man. Awesome. You know, this is something you, you've got so much publicity out there about you and you've done so many different ventures. There's a lot of information about you online, but what is something that you would like people to know about you that you can't find on the internet? I have a real love for the arts and particularly live theater. And I've contributed to theater both on Broadway and in the West End in London. And and a couple of the productions have been you know, my name attached to them and been higher profile, but, and I was honored to win an award in London for best revival, uh, Lawrence Olivier Award. So, I mean, it was been some of it online, but there's not very much about that online about me, but that's a big part of my passion. And I feel like similar to how I give back by way of supporting the incubators and accelerators in the innovation ecosystem, I'm a really big supporter of the arts, but actively, you know, as a producer, as something that I really love doing. It takes time. It's very much something that doesn't lead to big financial rewards, um, but it's something that I, I really love. And so thought a lot about how to improve that ecosystem in the Canadian market, but I haven't gotten anything off the ground yet in that regard. But that's something that's very important to me. Interesting. Yeah. It, well, I'd argue that we definitely need more arts in our society. I saw something very saying that culture is built on the sidewalk. Arts becomes a part of that. So good to know and good to hear that. I want to say thank you so much for reconnecting and making the time and sharing your experience. So 
Anthony, really appreciate it. Corey, my pleasure, man. Nice chatting with you again and glad you're doing really well and good luck with all this. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.